Hello and welcome to episode 347 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Nathan Fox. That's Ben Olson, together with the co-founders of LSATdemon.com. This episode is going to come out on Monday, April 25th, which is just two days short of the registration deadline for the June 2022 LSAT. Ben, how would somebody decide whether they should sign up for that test? They would look at their most recent practice tests. Hopefully you've taken more than 10 at this point. (laughs) And are you scoring where you want to score? If so, continue and take it. If not, don't worry about it. Yeah. If you're not happy with your documented record of practice tests, you should not be signing up for the official LSAT. I don't care what the deadline is to apply for any school. I don't care there's no reason to sign up for it unless you're happy with your practice test scores. So that's the clear decision point. Um, you know, start looking ahead on the LSAC schedule for future deadlines and practice hard up until that deadline to register and then decide whether you're ready to register or not. That's really what everybody should be doing. A couple cool things coming up. We've got, or actually one cool thing coming up, um, Saturday, May 21st, how to get a law job you love with Rachel Gezersay. That's a free class uh, about legal legal job networking and how you can actually get started on that now as an LSAT student, uh, get a big head start on your legal career. Ultimately, we want you to be successful lawyers, uh, which <laughs> does entail a job. So go to lsat.link slash Rachel and you can sign up for uh, that class again, Saturday, May 21st, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. You can come to my study group, by the way, every other Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. Ask me any question you want about the law school admission test or law school admissions. Again, all you need is a free LSAT demon account. Today on the show, uh, Lots of LSAT heavy stuff right at the top. We did a logical reasoning question. It was a reasoning question, uh, specifically the role variant of a reasoning question. We tackled that first. We had a question about eliminating answer choices on logical reasoning. And we had a question about whether reading comp had gotten harder. Then we went into our usual mailbag and a bunch of fun stuff about admissions and things. Uh, We are still looking for a new teacher specifically we need uh, a replacement we're losing people going to law school as they always do we're losing one to the university of toronto law school uh, best law school in canada we're losing another one to uh yale best law school in the united states and uh because of that world (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah but yeah well i don't know let's say the United States. Um, and, uh, so we need people to come and teach for us. Uh, you do need a documented 99th percentile LSAT score on the modern test. That's uh, 174 or higher. And you're going to need to send us that score report and a video of yourself, uh, teaching one logic game, send that in. Uh, you can just send that to, well, the podcast, how about help at thinking and we'll get your, uh, get your submission to see if you can come teach for us. Uh, I think that's it. Ready to dive in? Let's do it. Oh, um, hey, day one listeners. We want questions for the guests that we are going to have next week. You need to get on it right away because we're going to interview this guy in like a day, like tomorrow. Okay, so day one listeners, please email us questions for Derek Brainerd. Uh, he is National Director of Financial Education at Access Lex. 
he uh, his pitch is the average law school graduate owes one hundred sixty thousand dollars in student loan debt. The thought of paying for law school can leave many students overwhelmed and wondering where to start post graduation. Derek Brainerd can offer tips around financially preparing for graduation and getting ahead of expenses. He can also offer uh, questions law schools should be asking themselves and tools they can make use of to make informed financial decisions along the way. If you have questions about law school financing, please email help at thinkinglset.com. But you got to do it today because we're interviewing him tomorrow. Really quick, you said he can offer questions law schools should be asking. You meant law students, right? Oh, should sorry, I misspoke. Themselves. My bad. Thank yeah. you for correct for the correction. Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna give law students advice about uh, hey shit they should be thinking about as graduation looms. <laughs> the unfortunate thing about graduation from law school is that your student loan payments are gonna come due. Um, yeah. The current uh, federal government student loan pause is about to end and everybody's going to have to start paying their uh, student loans back, including law students. And yeah, (laughs) so that's something you need to brace yourself for. Of course, our tip is always just don't pay for law school in the first place so you don't go into this mountain of debt. Mm -hmm. Um, It'll be interesting to hear what uh, Mr. Brainerd's tips are for, you know, how to prepare yourself for boy, that kind of debt. It ain't recycling cans. I'll tell you that. Mm-mm. Yeah. What does he suggest to people who have that debt? Yeah. I'm curious. We'd like you to avoid it. <laughs> Let's just avoid it. But if you get some of it, what do you do then? Yep. yep. God forbid 160,000 of it. Yeah. Again, email, uh, help at thinking If you have questions for our guest that we're going to interview tomorrow. Thanks guys. Really appreciate you guys for uh, listening on the first day and sending in good questions. That's really helpful. Okay. Uh, on to the show. All right. You ready to kick it off with a logical reasoning question from prep test 73. Yeah, let's do it. You're going to have to read this one and it's got it's gonna start with a hard word to sound out. You ready? Are you prepared? Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> Always ready. I, re- I love hard words and new words. Um, I want to say frangers. Yeah, I would have said franger. By the way, this is test Franger? 73, section okay. four, question number nine. If you want to play along at home, uh, you can get to that question via lsatdemon.com and just sign up for a free account. If you want to try the question, hit pause, try the question, and then uh, listen to us talk about it for 20 minutes. Anyway, (laughs) go ahead, Ben. Yeah. Okay. So I'll read it and you'll tell us what you think. Um, Franger's assertion that the art, oh geez, there's another word here, that the artist, um, Hieronymus? I would say Hieronymus. Hieronymus. Thank you. Hieronymus Bosch. (laughs) Okay. H. Belonged to the Brethren of the Free Spirit, a non-mainstream religious group is unlikely to be correct. Okay. So, um, you know, that's a good spot to pause. Yeah. Very, very good. Yeah. Novices are going to just like blaze through to the second sentence. And it's the equivalent of just stuffing more food in your mouth when you haven't chewed the previous bite. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. We got to chew on that for a second. They're doing a thing here that they do, uh, kind of commonly on the LSAT, which is, they relay someone else's opinion 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's not the author's opinion that uh, Bosch belonged to this non-mainstream religious group, the Brethren, mm-hmm. we'll call mm-hmm. them. Um, <laughs> it, it's not the author's <laughs> assertion that Bosch belonged to the Brethren. Matter of fact, the author thinks that Bosch is not a member of the Brethren, right? Mm-hmm. The author is mm-hmm. bringing up Franger's assertion that Bosch was in the Brethren and then saying, but Franger, sorry, you're wrong. Yeah. Okay. So that's all that's there. I mean, really, it's like Franger's wrong. Bosch is not in the Brethren. Yeah. Or unlikely to be correct. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. I don't think he is. It's not, it doesn't seem likely to me. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm expecting that to be the conclusion of the argument because, you know, you, you show up yelling about somebody's wrong. Well, okay. I have never heard of this before. Why are they wrong? Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, it's a natural question to ask. It's just what? What? OK, why do you think they're wrong about this? Yep. That, that doesn't mean that that has to be their conclusion. But the way these things tend to go is, you know, speaker shows up yelling about somebody's wrong about this. And then they tell you why. Yeah, so that's what I'm anticipating. Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, just to double down on that, if this said Frank uh, Franger's conclusion or assertion is unlikely to be correct, and then went on to say, therefore, we shouldn't ever listen to him. It'd be like, oh, yeah. okay, well, you were using that as evidence to draw a conclusion, but that just doesn't happen super often. When you say totally. somebody's wrong, you're probably going to now feel compelled to justify why you think so. Yep. Okay. So the next sentence says, Franger's hypothesis explains much of Bosch's unusual subject matter. Well, okay. Um <laughs> I thought you were going to come here to tell me why Franger's wrong in yep. in uh, his or her hypothesis about Bosch, but that second sentence really is only evidence in favor of the hypothesis being correct. Yeah. So it, I think it's probably going to be like that's going to be an an uh, a concession, and I can you know looking ahead, I see that the next word is however. So this is, again, it's just like a fairly common pattern of argumentation. Mm-hmm. So-and-so is wrong about X. Now, it's true that they're slightly right about this part of it, but they're ultimately wrong for whatever reasons. Yep. Okay. However, there is evidence that Bosch was a member of a mainstream church and no evidence that he was a member of the Brethren. Okay, and now I have to object. So I, I know. So now I really do understand the argument. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like so much easier to understand the argument if you take the time to unpack the first sentence and sort of think ahead about what you're probably about to read. Mm-hmm. Um, it is more or less what I thought. The middle sentence isn't. I, I wasn't expecting the concession really, but... In the end, it's like, well, look, we got evidence that Bosch was in this mainstream church. There is no evidence that he was a member of the Brethren. So I think it's unlikely to be correct that he was a member of the Brethren. Yeah. Um, But allow me to retort, uh, because our job on the LSAT is not to agree. Our job is to disagree uh, with these speakers, because if you're not, then I don't know. (laughs) Like You're just not playing the game the easy way, right? I need to think of reasons why this could be bullshit. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so first of all, absence of evidence that he was a member of the brethren is not evidence of absence. I, I read that the other day. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like, it, you know, here it would be like absence from the brethren. Uh, yeah, sure. You don't have any evidence that he was in the brethren, but it's like, well, you don't have any evidence that somebody was in the KKK. Okay. Well, they might not like want there to be public evidence that they were in the KKK. So lack of evidence that they're in this weird non-mainstream, whatever the group is, if we don't have evidence to prove it. Yeah. Yeah. But they could still be in it. And there's good reasons why, I mean, someone would hide an affiliation like this. Yeah. Maybe another way of stating it is that no evidence that he was a member of the brethren is different from saying that you have evidence that he wasn't a member. Right. Those are two very different things. Yeah. In one case, you just lack evidence. Okay. So you don't know anything. <laughs> in the yeah. other case, you actually have evidence, and right. the evidence is against his membership in, right. uh, of, of him being a member of that organization. Yeah. Cause like better, if, if you even had a single brethren meeting, you know, if you're like, well, you know, cause the brethren, they get together for donuts every Tuesday at 4 PM Yep. and Bosch wasn't there. Yep. Well, okay. That's evidence that he's not a member of the brethren. Cause at least you've got him absent from one meeting. Yeah. It's not very good evidence, but it's something. Yeah. Right. And you don't even have that. All you have is no evidence that he was there having donuts <laughs> <laughs> with the brethren. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, no evidence that he was a member of the brethren. Oops. Yeah, it doesn't really do anything. And then the evidence that he was a member of a mainstream church, you know, I just got to I kind of go, well, why not both? Yeah. Why can't you be a member of multiple things? People are members of multiple things all the time. Yeah. And also, what if it's like that cover cover? Exactly. Yeah. He's got this yeah. fake membership. You know, he goes with his wife Family. to the <laughs> mainstream church and then he goes with his boyfriend to the non-mainstream brethren. Mm-hmm. And it's like, OK, you know, he he very well could have been hiding something. OK, so all that, by the way, you know, it takes us five minutes to talk it through. But really, that's the kind of thing that we think of. It it flashes through our head, right? I mean, it's like 10 seconds. Yeah. Well, one thing that's been drilled into our minds is that when you say you don't have any evidence for something, we think, okay, that means you know nothing. And you need to get to a point where you read that and instantly recognize exactly what it's saying and not imbue it with meaning that's not there. Yeah. What would the lawyer... What would the yeah. lawyer on the other side say? I mean, if like if the if the prosecution for this argument, right, the author is the prosecution for this argument. Mm-hmm. If that if the prosecution is like there's no they're hammering on the desk, there's no evidence that he was a member of the brethren. Well, your job on the other side is to stand up and go, excuse me, did you just say you have no evidence? Yeah. <laughs> OK, where are we your going honor, from there? Your Honor, can we strike that from the record? Because I believe the prosecution just said, or actually, you know, can we emphasize that in the record? The prosecution <laughs> yeah. just said that they have no evidence. Yeah. You know, it, like, because like there should be a period after no evidence, mm-hmm. right? Like no evidence of anything. It's like, well, no, but you don't have evidence of that thing. Yeah. So like, I don't have evidence that Ben is a member, active member of the KKK to go use that example again. Right. Well, it's <laughs> Thank like, you. Okay, 
<laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, look what happened there when I'm like, yeah. well, I can't prove it. Ben has, nope, I have no evidence whatsoever that Ben is an active member of the KKK. Mm-hmm. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> what now? I mean, yeah, you don't have evidence of that mm-hmm. fact. So it doesn't do anything. It's just a non, yeah. it's nothing. Yeah. Okay. You know, what's what's weird here, too, this is another idea that flashed in my head as soon as you read that last sentence. And I, I do want to emphasize this. The more you do this, the faster these ideas come because your mind is, this is a supercomputer and it just like recognizes these patterns. And it's like, whoa, you're going to say yeah. that? Well, this is what this means. Here's another thought that came to my mind. I'm like, what you're saying, your premise is, is seems oddly contradictory to what you just conceded. You're like, you conceded. Oh, yeah. That this hypothesis explains much of Bosch's unusual subject matter. That, to me, seems like some evidence, even if it's very minimal, for the idea that he's a member of this this weird group. Right. The only real argument here is um, you've given me something. You gave me this concession that he that the hypothesis does explain why he's acting all weird all the time Mm -hmm. (laughs) with his subject matter. Yeah. Really? You just admitted that his subject matter is really closely aligned with the brethren. Yeah. You've acknowledged that. Oh, but now he's a member of the mainstream church. Yeah, obviously that's a cover. Mm-hmm. What? And you don't have any evidence that he was a member of the brethren? Okay, well, absence of evidence doesn't prove shit. Mm-hmm. So this argument is doing nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's not very not very strong. Okay. Yeah. Well, time for the question. Sure. Question nine. The statement that there is no evidence that Bosch was a member of the brethren the one we've been obsessing over figures in the argument in which one of the following ways. Yeah. So these role questions, I students always overcomplicate them. Like mm. they, they read some shitty lesson somewhere that like really focuses all of its attention on intermediate conclusions. <laughs> and so then students just like they're obsessed with intermediate conclusions and all this like mumbo jumbo technicalities of the LSAT. Yeah. Keep it simple, y'all. Is it evidence or is it the conclusion or is it something else? Mm -hmm. The conclusion of this argument is um, Franger's wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Franger's unlikely to be correct. Okay, so there's no evidence that Bosch was a member of the Brethren. Is that evidence in favor of the conclusion of the argument? Which is he probably wasn't right. Franger is the one who's saying he's a member of the Brethren. Right. Yep. So yep. so we're trying to say that that's wrong. Yeah. So we're trying to say he's not a member of the brethren. Yeah. So no evidence of of the brethren. Yeah, that was meant as a premise of the argument. We we pointed out all its problems, but the author is clearly presenting the last two claims in the last sentence as evidence or as premises for his conclusion. Right. Right. I would, you know, and I'd have two different ways of getting around those two member of a mainstream church. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to try to suggest that that's just a cover. No evidence that he was a member of a brethren. I'm going to make the case that that doesn't really prove anything. Yep. Nonetheless, you presented it as evidence in your favor. Yes. (laughs) There's a difference between shitty evidence. (laughs) Yeah. And and good evidence. But that's not what this question is asking. It's just asking, hey, what? did this author intend this claim to do in his argument? Yeah. So uh, that, I mean, I would keep it that simple heading into these answer choices. I'm looking for, Oh, it's a premise of the argument. Yep. It's a premise in support of the idea that Franger's wrong about whether that, that Bosch was a member of the brethren. (laughs) 
Okay, you're going to love this. Okay, answer choice A says, it is a premise that when combined with the other premises, and by the way, there was only one other premise, guarantees the falsity of Franger's assertion. Now, they, they could have chosen a hundred different words there in in place of guarantees and made it hard to dismiss. Sure. You know, if it just yeah. said supports there or, or offers some, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Supports. To make it one word, you just put supports. And if it said supports the falsity, then I, yeah. Okay. It does support the falsity. I mean, at least that's what it was intended to do. Yeah. But yeah. guarantees, so 100% proves that Franger's wrong? Absolutely not. I mean, I had so many objections to that argument. So it, it, it's, no, it's evidence. It's shitty evidence in favor of um, the assertion that Franger is wrong. I do want to clarify one thing for people who are paying really close attention. We, we've hammered on this evidence and we've said that it's shitty. And then you've replaced this word guarantees with supports. And I guess... On some level, it supports the conclusion in the sense that it's getting, it's like a defender, right? It's like almost like a necessary assumption uh, or it's not necessary per se, but it's, it's getting, ri- it's getting rid of a possibility out there that there was evidence oh, yeah. that he was a member. So oh, no. on that, yeah. So it's helping. It's just helping <sighs> very, very minimally. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I'm an yeah. advocate, right? I'm, yeah. I'm like, I'm trying to demonstrate the type of advocacy that we're supposed to be doing. If I was an advocate on the other side, like let's mm-hmm. say Franger is the prosecution, prosecuting yeah. Bosch. Yep. Franger accuses in court, Bosch is a member of the brethren. Mm-hmm. On this exact same evidence, I'm like, your honor, this case has to be thrown out. There mm-hmm. is no evidence that Bosch was a member of the brethren. Yeah. <laughs> The one problem with that is that Franger's hypothesis explains much of Bosch's unusual subject matter <laughs> is evidence, but <laughs> uh, potentially yeah. of Bosch's uh, uh, membership in the Brethren. Uh, putting that aside, um, the fact that he was a member of a mainstream church, that's absolutely something I would say if I was trying to defend this guy. Mm-hmm. I'd be mm-hmm. like, are you fucking kidding me? He's a deacon of this church. He's been going yeah. to this church for 18 years. He got married there, had his kids baptized there. What are you talking about? Member yeah. of the brethren. This guy's yeah. an upstanding member of the mainstream religious group. Yeah. Uh, and there's no evidence that he was a member of the brethren. So, yeah, the judgment of how good or how shitty evidence is. Well, it kind of depends on what team you're playing for. Mm-hmm. All right. I understand how it would be used by both sides is what I'm saying. This is yeah. like the this is why the LSAT is such good training for law school and for actually being a lawyer. Uh, you should train yourself to be a, you got to be able to just fight on both sides. And, but anyway, it, it, this is not a closed case, which is why we can't pick A. And not anywhere close. Right. So this yeah. is definitively wrong. B, it is used to support the claim that Bosch was a member of a mainstream church. Nah, not quite. It, it It's used to support the claim that Franger's wrong. But about the brethren, but not yeah, about the mainstream church. Yeah. No, because it's a premise of the argument that Bosch was a member of a mainstream church. There's no evidence in support of the claim that Bosch was a member of a mainstream church would be like, well, let's look at the church records. You know, here, look, he signed his name or, or he look, attended or whatever. Canceled mm-hmm. checks. He's been tithing every week or 
yeah, attendance or he got married there or whatever, but not, um, there's no evidence that he was a member of the brethren. Therefore he was a member of the mainstream church. That's not what it said. And that's why we can't pick B. Also you have, and in between there suggesting these are two premises that are presented in parallel, not one supporting the other, right? It's like, Hey, this, and by the way, let me add one more thing. Okay. So B is out. C. It is used to dispute Franger's hypothesis by questioning Franger's credibility. Oh, man. Uh, The first half of that is right. It is used to dispute Franger's hypothesis, but not in that way. It's not, we're not saying Franger himself, whatever, was a member of the Brethren or something like that would be questioning Franger's credibility, or maybe that might be actually supporting his credibility. If he's trying to say that Bosch was a fellow member of the Brethren, but you know, Franger was a weirdo. Franger was a drug addict. Franger lied perpetually. Documented liar. Yeah. Yeah. So the questioning, the credibility, you know, this is a good example, both B and C. I mean, you could, you could make subtle changes to them and make them correct, which is why students really have to get used to the idea that when you pick an answer, you're picking the whole answer. Like students all the time are like, but it says dispute Franger's hypothesis. That's what, that's what is being, that's what the argument is doing. It's disputing Franger's hypothesis. And then I go, yeah, but read the rest of it. What does it say? And they go by questioning Franger's credibility. And I go, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And then they have to think it through for the first time ever by disputing Franger's credibility. So I guess that would be like, by saying that Franger is untrustworthy. And I'm like, yeah. And you picked that answer. Is that what it did? No. Okay. Well then that's why it's wrong. And you've really got to grapple with, you know, you got, you, you don't have to understand every word of all of the wrong answers you don't pick, but you do have to understand and vouch for the, all of the words in the answer that you do pick, because we see lots of these answers that are, First half of them are right, and they're just, you know, catch you being lazy, pick it and move on. Catch you being lazy or catch you being, well, same thing, going fast, going too fast and trying to pick an answer quickly. Yep. D, it is intended to cast doubt on Franger's hypothesis by by questioning the sufficiency of Franger's evidence. Yeah, there we go questioning the sufficiency of the evidence. I mean, that's specifically exactly what that is. There is no, no evidence. evidence. Yeah. You don't have enough. Yeah. Not only because do you don't you have, not any. have enough to prove you don't have any at all. Exactly. And so, okay. So the first half of D intended to cast doubt on Franger's hypothesis means the exact same thing as the first half of C used to dispute Franger's hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Those are not different until they get to the by. And so like the way they did it is what differentiates C from D um, and C's not, not what happened, but D is. So D is the answer. Okay. Just have to check off E. Yeah. Really quick. E says it is intended to help show that Bosch's choice of subject matter remains unexplained. What now? If anything, the facts actually gave a partial explanation of Bosch's choice of subject matter. I mean, I <laughs> anyway, it's just, They're not trying to show the conclusion of the argument is not we don't know why Bosch chose the subject matter he chose. Nope, that's not what the author was trying to prove. 
even though maybe it does now okay so if in fact he was not a member of the brethren then maybe we are left wondering why he had such unusual subject matter so maybe it does remain unexplained but that's not what it was intended to do that's just a byproduct of these words now, he's wrong because it misunderstands the main point of the argument. I mean, mm-hmm. this is why, like, we can't do this so formulaically. You you just can't answer shit. 90% of these questions, man, if there's an argument, you can't answer that question unless you understand the argument. You have to mm-hmm. know what the main point of the argument is. Mm-hmm. And here there is an argument. It's an attack on Franger. You yep. know, Franger's wrong about Bosch. He has nothing to do with Franger. He has nothing to do with Bosch's membership in the Brethren. He's like, oh, yeah. So we're very confused about why Bosch did what he did. But that's not that wasn't the argument. So that one would be real easy to dismiss. And the answer is D. By the way, people like in politics and on TV do this all the time. They they don't want to answer the specific question or argument that's being made. And so then they, they pick up on like a tangent. So it seems relevant to what everybody's talking about, but then they just go off and they make a case for some side argument. They're like, well, yeah, but what I'd like to point out is that, you know, we can't really understand why Bosch was doing this and people follow it. You know, you just like in the moment (laughs) you go with that and the LSAT's like, nope, we're going to test you on your ability to stay focused on the conclusion and whether that's been proven or not and why not. Yeah. And, and on these support, uh, sorry, on these reasoning questions, specifically this role variant, mm-hmm. I would encourage people to just always stop before you read any of the answers and, and ask yourself, is it a, is it a premise or is it the conclusion or is it something else? And then if it's a premise or the conclusion, both of those require you to know what the conclusion is, because it's not just a premise. No, Mm -hmm. it's a premise in support of the conclusion of the argument. Mm -hmm. What is the conclusion of the argument? Okay, does this support that conclusion? Great. Then we're looking for it's a conclusion. It's a premise in support of the conclusion that the argument actually made. Uh, And yeah, that's. D is the only one that correctly describes it. All right. Uh, I'll read this first email. Um, so this actually came through our ask button uh, at LSATdemon.com. We hope you'll do all of your LSAT prep at uh, LSAT Demon. And if you do, uh, there's an explanation for, I mean, there's multiple explanations for every question in the history of the LSAT. Maybe we're not to 100% coverage yet, but we're rapidly getting there. And you know, it, you'd have to go on like a mystery hunt to go find the ones where there's not already uh, videos and written explanations. If you do, you can always hit the ask button and we'll have an explanation for you in 24 hours. So email us, help at thinkinglsat.com if you found one that doesn't have an explanation. But actually, before you do that, hit, an, hit the ask button and uh, it will lickety yeah. split. Anyway. There's an ask button on every page and people sometimes just submit random like topical questions through the ask Mm -hmm. button Mm -hmm. that aren't question specific. So we actually have three of those here. Okay. Yeah. First one on logical reasoning. Do you suggest I always eliminate every wrong answer before moving forward? Or do you think it is okay for me to select an answer I think is very strong before I have gone through and eliminated every wrong answer? I ask 
because I do realize that on some questions, I would have gotten it right if I had taken more time to eliminate all the wrong answers. But on the other hand, I usually do get most questions right, even without going through every single question, uh, every single answer and eliminating it. And of course, that saves time. I suppose on some level, this is a question of how much I should trust my instincts. And maybe the answer is just that I probably shouldn't do that until I'm scoring 175 plus. We don't have to dwell on this, but what do you think, Ben? Yeah, you're just giving time too much weight again. I mean, it's unfortunate because you seem to recognize that when you do eliminate or go through all the answers and try to eliminate the ones that you haven't, that you think are wrong because you've chosen B or whatever, and then you realize that on some occasions you catch yourself and you get the right answer. You say, I would have gotten the right answer right if I had taken more time to eliminate all the wrong answers. When you get it wrong in that situation, it's just like you've spent, what, maybe a minute and a half, who knows how long you spent, and you just threw all that time away. It would have it would have been the same as you just sitting there twiddling your thumbs. So you're trying to save time by carving off a few seconds. Those seconds could be worth a whole entire point. I don't think it's a good move. And I don't think it's a good move even for people who are scoring 175 plus. It's not like you get to 175 plus and now oh, I'm going to stop eliminating all the answers because that's how you got to 175 plus <laughs> by yeah. eliminating all the answers. So it's, yeah. it's not a it's not a method you want to remove and then effectively drop your score. Always read all five. That's not to say that you have to conclusively eliminate each one. No, you don't have to know why they're wrong. You just have to see that there's enough reason here to believe that this is a bad answer because that's where your instincts come in, right? You're like reading it. You're like, whoa, like, okay, you're talking about something else. I don't even understand that, but that's out. Yeah, people need to like the most important thing almost that I can get you to do on the LSAT is to flip your attitude toward the answer choices. You need to expect the answers to be wrong. I say this on like every episode, four out of five answers are wrong. So when I read a, I'm like, Hey, four out of five times, this is wrong. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give them just as much respect as they deserve, which is almost nothing. Like I'm reading a looking to dismiss it, not looking to pick it. I'm looking mm -hmm. to get rid of it. And I don't have to conclusively know why I'm getting rid of it. Frequently. I just shrug my shoulders. It's like, uh, huh? What? That doesn't seem to be answering the question. What are you talking about? What? I don't. I mean, so like half the time I'm like, oh, I can see you're confusing sufficient for necessary there. Or, oh, no, no, no. You're misdescribing the argument specifically. But like another half of the time, I'm just like, eh, I don't think so. And I'm going to do that pretty quickly through all five answers because to the extent that I'm ever going to go fast, that's where I'm going to go fast is on the wrong answer choices. Mm -hmm. And especially in the case where you feel strongly that you've already identified, you know, let's say B is the answer. Okay, great. But you still need to just quickly check off C, check off D, check off E. I mean, I guess we're just saying the same thing twice, but you don't have to like teach an LSAT class about why that answer is wrong. You just have to read it and make sure that it's not like saying a better version of exactly what the answer that you're about to pick said. 
Yeah, what I'm really doing, and uh, let me know if this is what you're doing, but I'm. It's almost like I'm. I'm expecting them to be wrong, but I'm just making sure that none of them give me that pause where I'm like, wait a sec. Okay, that's actually kind of making sense. And then I need to read it more carefully and be like, oh yeah, that could be correct. And therefore I need to compare it to the one I chose. In most cases, it's like I might get that pause and then I read it a little more carefully. Like, oh, no, 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 it's wrong. It's trying to do this, but it got this confused or whatever. But in a lot of cases, I never get that pause. So it's like, okay, C is wrong. Yeah, it's a D. I don't know what you're talking about. E, uh, again, I don't know what you're talking about. You're out of here. Yeah. But on occasion, you get that weird like, hmm, wait, that kind of makes right. sense. And then well, you got to dig in. On occasion, you were wrong about yep. B, B being right. And mm -hmm. it turns out that E was right. And then that, you know, because... I mean, the thing to really do, and you could actually do some math here. How long does it take you to check off C, D, E? If those are all, you know, let's say the answer was B mm -hmm. and you're just going to read through C, D, E just, just far enough to feel like they're wrong, which, you know, you mm -hmm. don't even need to read every word in the answer choice. Sometimes you just, you read it up to the point where it's conclusively wrong. No, no, no. Like maybe that took 15 seconds. Yeah. Okay. So you save 15 seconds if you don't do that. Mm -hmm. What's your accuracy rate have to be in order to justify that 15 seconds of saved time? Because it probably takes you 90 seconds on average to do a question. That's if you're finishing the section. It takes 90 seconds to finish, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So you'd have to be right six times. For every time you're wrong in order for it to be a like economic trade-off. I mean, if it takes you 90 seconds on average to do a question and get it right. Yeah. Well then, okay. You, you, so you could like save 15 seconds this time and save 15 seconds next time. And if you save 15 seconds six times, okay, well now you've saved 90 seconds and maybe that is enough time that you do another question and get it right. Okay. Wow. Okay. So maybe you actually made money off of that decision. But I don't think it even takes 15 seconds. I think it takes more like eight seconds. Well, actually, that's what I was going to say when you were done talking, because I remember this time when I was studying for the test, um, sometimes the I, I was monitoring my time. Yeah. This was a long, long time ago. And I remember sometimes I would see, hey, I got 34. I'm at 34 minutes and 30 seconds. So I got 30 seconds left. And I would just stop, right? I'd be like, okay, I can't do the last logical reasoning question. And then I had this idea one day to start, just keep working. Like, cause if the, if I read the passage and the answer, and I read A and A happens to be right and I pick it, well, great. I got something out of that sure. 30 seconds, right? And what astounded me was when I started doing that, I kept anticipating the test to end. Right? It's like I'm reading the passage and I'm waiting for them to, because I was sitting in a classroom, a kindergarten classroom, and I was waiting for the proctor to be like, stop. And it wouldn't come and it wouldn't come and it wouldn't come. And I'd be like down to answer choice C. Yeah. And then it would end. Right. Or sometimes I get through the whole question and I'm like, I had 30 seconds. Like what happened? Like some of these questions, I'm not saying to rush through them. I'm just saying that reading when you're fully engaged who knows how long it takes you? Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Um, 
I, I suppose it cuts both ways because then that could be used as an argument for, well, you do want to shave off time by not reading wrong answers because you might be able to answer another question in 30 seconds. Um, but putting well, that- Well, what I'm saying is the amount of time that you're using for those last few questions is, is smaller, right? And so right. then that economic equation is going to become even harder to yeah. meet. Yeah, it actually shouldn't be the, the amount of time you're, just to be clear, we don't want people doing questions faster as they get closer to the end of the section. That's not our advice. Our advice is that you completely ignore the clock and just go at your own pace and answer questions correctly. That's our advice. Um, I think the takeaway here and, you know, the direct answer to this question is you should always check off all five answers. You just don't have to spend forever eliminating them. And there are times where, like on Logic Games, for example, it's going to be really difficult to conclusively prove that all the answer, all the other answers are wrong, but you can conclusively prove that the right answer is right. And so in that case, it's like you just kind of look at them. You just scan the, you're like, yeah, no, I know I can prove this. I don't think I can prove these other ones. Okay, that's my answer. Mm -hmm. And and on uh, logical reasoning and reading comprehension, I think it's the same thing. You've got to at least give them a chance because they don't, you can be wrong. I mean, I can be wrong. Ben is wrong. Like we're, we're sometimes wrong. We like get romanced by one of the earlier answers and then oops, <laughs> we find out later, you know, but it's like that, that puzzling moment of like, whoa, wait, what? Oh shit. And then you do have to compare those answers to each other. Yeah. Um, doesn't happen very often, but when it does, you know, you end up turning a zero into a one. So, uh, that's a high value use of those 10 seconds or whatever it takes to uh, make sure you check off the wrong answers. Yeah. You want to read this next one? Yep. Hi, I've heard that RC reading comp is getting harder after prep test 55 and prep test 80 ish. So I guess getting harder and then getting harder again. Do you know if that's the case? I'm currently using practice tests 20 to 30 for practice. And I was wondering if that will throw me off. You're a better judge of this than I am. To me, no, I don't find the reading comp to be harder, but mm -hmm. maybe you have some data that the reading comp is harder. Um, yeah, I actually pulled up the data and I was just curious. We can do something pretty easy here. So I'm going to go to test 55. I, I would say um, in my experience, yes, it has gotten harder. I think, um, but I don't have those specific ranges. I would just say reading comp answer choices feel to me like they've gotten closer. And I do think that's reflected in the data. But let's take a look here really quick. I'm going to go to test, well, they said 55. So let's start with 55. I'm going to take the average after difficulty. After 55. So start with 56. Well, I'm going to figure out what the average is for 55 and earlier. Oh, I see. So, or, I mean, we can do it in any order, but. While Ben's doing this, I'm going to respond and say, um, will it throw you off to do prep test practice with prep test 20 to 30? No, it's not going to throw you off. Um, the read, you know, it might've changed. Ben might find data that, yeah, sure. The questions are slightly harder, but it's just not, it's not like wildly harder where it makes a big difference. The substance of the test just really has not changed very much. 
And students worry way too much about like which exact tests they're doing. Just do more tests. You're fine. The more ground you cover. I mean, because here's the thing, like when you're doing prep test 20 to 30, you're getting dramatically better at the test. As you get dramatically better at the test, then all of the entire test becomes dramatically easier for you. So if reading comp on the modern test is slightly harder, could it skew your diagnostics by one point? Sure. Could it maybe two points? I, I can't imagine that it's more than that. So the really the short answer is stop worrying about it and just, you know, focus on individual questions that you're struggling with. Uh, that's where you're really going to make your improvement. But OK, what does uh, data show? We have oh, average difficulty per question is three point one for the older tests and from 55 up. <laughs> It's 3.12. Yeah. Okay. So answer is that's no. really small. <laughs> yeah. Insignificant. That's an insignificant yeah. difference. And it's certainly something that you shouldn't worry about, even if it was a significant difference. I mean, all I would say is, well, okay, so you should probably, you know, do the modern tests before, or at least some of them before you sit for your official test. And maybe you should take your older diagnostics with a grain of salt. But it's also the case that the games were harder. I mean, the games used to be harder for sure. Yeah. Uh, before prep test. Oh, I don't know. Roughly 35 ish. Those games used to be harder. And so um, the test overall, I feel like the test overall has gotten easier. But anyway. Yeah. You know, well, one other thing I was going to say is even if you do get a section that is easier because the section difficulty varies more than I think when you look at a bunch of tests and you average them. Um, it's like, okay, well, did you get all the questions right? Because if you're getting questions wrong, there's still things to learn from that. So there's, there's nothing wrong with doing that and then learning from it. Like, yeah, what, what do you, until you're perfect, you haven't maxed out the benefits that come from that section or test. 90%, maybe 95% of all the questions that any student ever asks us, you would be better off asking a specific question about a specific LSAT question that you have missed. Like everybody it's, it's human nature to look for these big themes and think about, you know, data and uh, I don't know all, all this stuff that you guys are so con concerned with, but mm -hmm. like the actual real improvement, the place where you're going to make progress is you need to find a good teacher and you need to work with them on, individual LSAT questions that you don't understand. Yeah. Find your area of un understanding and, 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 you know, cause the, like whatever, like if reading comp is harder. Okay. Like we could take all day thinking about it, but it would be just much better for you to focus on a specific issue. Yeah. Okay. Next uh, the one, this is the last one from the ask button. It says, Hi there. I'm the VP of events at my university's pre-law society, and I'm a user of the LSAT demon. I heard in the last episode of Thinking LSAT about your sponsorship deals with pre-law societies. I recommend LSAT demon to everyone I know and would love for you to sponsor us. Mm. Are we sponsoring? <laughs> I guess. Well, what we will do is um, if you post affiliate links on your site, not not affiliate links, if you post a link to 
our shit, we will give everybody, you and everybody in your group, um, 25% off your first month. So, um, where do people find that by the way? Do we have an LSAT dot link slash pre-law? Now we do. We do LSAT.link okay. slash pre-law and you can find assets uh, for your pre-law organization. So we'll have images and links there for your 25% off for you and everybody in your group. Uh, hopefully you guys will come study together at LSATdemon.com. Cool. That's it for the ask button. You want to read this excuse of the week? Sure. The age-old, I don't have time, has been uttered this week by one student. Another one that may be somewhat legit that I don't think you all have ever, wait, what? That I don't think you all have ever done is my student who emailed me yesterday saying that they caught COVID, but they think that we can still do the lesson because it isn't that bad yet. (laughs) Might be interesting to just... Just just to pose. How do you say that? Just juxtapose. Juxtapose. Thank you. Juxtapose the I don't have time versus I have COVID and I'm doing it anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) That's our excuse. The excuse of the week is I didn't have time. Um, Yeah. Y'all, you need to make time. You need to make time. You need to get up earlier. You need to burn the midnight oil. You need to work on the weekends. Uh, you need to make time for your LSAT prep. And if you can't, then you can't. But if if you don't have the time, then it's not the time for you to prepare for the LSAT. Like this does require a bit of showing up every day. So, you know, the irony here is that this is someone who's paying for private tutoring. Yep. And then they show up at their meeting with their private tutor and they say, I didn't have time to do the stuff that we talked about. Yeah. So they're showing up for the most expensive part. That's a total waste of money, you guys. Like, please don't do that. Please don't pay for private tutoring and then like not do homework. That would be exceptionally dumb. I mean, unless you're like, if man, if your family's made of money and you like want a real expensive LSAT babysitter, I suppose you could use a tutor that way. Yeah. Um, But. the majority of people, I think like you, you want to be sensible about your use of resources and you're just, I think, you know, you want to make as much progress as you can make. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well then you're going to have to kind of show up every day and we just, we don't, I don't know. No excuses. Kinda. (laughs) I mean, yeah. And then it's like, it's funny because then the same tutor is like, well, then I have somebody else who literally has COVID and they're like, no, nah, let's do it. I'm, I, I could do it. Let's do it. And they're, yeah. I mean, not, not that that's maybe the best decision in the world, but still like that, that's the kind of, you know, if you don't have time now, when do you have time? Yeah. Well, you know, this Thursday I'm doing a class called triple your productivity and smile, right? It will have already happened by the time you hear this podcast, but if you're a live, live subscriber, you can go back and watch the video, but the point is, is that I've been thinking a lot about um, productivity and time and actually rereading books on it just because now I'm curious because I'm presenting on it. And one thing that that strikes me with that I keep hearing over and over again, and I have to agree, the issue with being productive is not time. 
because everybody has the same amount of time. And I know we've heard that before, but it's, it's ultimately how you use that time. Yeah. And are you, are you essentially filling your life with things that are of great value or are you filling them with things that are of minimal or no value or even negative value, right? Destructive things. Mm. And, and so when you get up and you think to yourself, okay, oh my God, I have so much to do today. Well, of all the things you have to do, some of those things are going to be of great value and some of them are going to be of almost no value. But what you're doing is you're not stopping for a half second to decide what is actually of great value and saying no to the things that are of lower value. And here's another idea that I thought was interesting. We we vote with the actions we take. So whatever action you take, you're essentially saying, okay, well, this is of higher value, right? Like if you decide to do something, you're saying that even if you don't believe that. And, and where that belief and the action disconnect, you do things that are of lower value, that's where the stress comes in. So this person has essentially voted and said, the L side is of lower value and I didn't do it. But they may not actually believe that. And if they don't believe that, they believe the L side is actually important to them now and to their future, then they need to stop and say no to the things that are of lesser value. I mean, I have mm. so much to say about this, but it's just like you're, you're not taking the time to decide what's important and you're not taking the time or the, you're then not acting on that information to really stop things that don't matter. It's not necessarily about, I mean, you mentioned getting up earlier and maybe that's part of it. Maybe people are being lazy and they're, you know, they're staying up late doing stupid shit and then they're sleeping in and all this stuff. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to become like Elon Musk, right? And like grind it out. Maybe you just need to be <laughs> smarter about and willing to say no to things that are not important. I'm looking forward to going to that class I'm, as a student. Uh, I will be there on Thursday to learn what I can learn from you about productivity. Cool. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I do really like this idea of uh, you are what you do, right? Mm -hmm. You said something about you vote by your actions. You, yeah. you are what you do, right? I mean, like if you want to be a runner, um, well, you run. Runners yeah. run. Yep. Right. I mean, if you like, oh, you didn't run for a year. Well, are you a runner? Yeah. I, I mean, I guess you could be an injured runner. Uh, that's a different thing. <laughs> like, yeah. It, so an LSAT student who didn't have time to study the LSAT. Is that an LSAT student? Or a future attorney? Yeah. Uh, if you are an LSAT student, then you study LSAT. By your actions you define yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I can't wait. We could talk endlessly about this. I, now I'm thinking about that book essentialism. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some people really need to start by saying no to things. Yeah. Um, you, you've got, because if you're showing up to an expensive private tutoring session saying I didn't have time to study this week. Wow. Okay. Um, boy, then, you should spend that entire tutoring session looking at your schedule for the week ahead and figuring out which things you're not going to do this week. And, and maybe LSAT is maybe LSAT is that thing. I mean, maybe you're going to decide, hey, let's cancel next week's session. This is not the right time for me. Yep. 
right? But don't just like, okay, uh, well, let's just, you know, uh, I guess we'll do some new questions together or something like that. I think that's probably what what normally an LSAT tutor would do in this context is to like say, oh, oh really? You didn't do any homework? You don't have any questions for me. Okay, well, um, sure. Let's just take a look at some new ones here. I'll dig one up for you here. Here's a logical reasoning question. Let's go. Yeah. And you think you're being productive in that hour. And I suppose you are, but you're not maybe being as productive as you could be in that hour because maybe the most productive use of that hour would be like, okay, uh, but then it's time to cut some shit out of your life. Yeah. And LSAT can easily, you, you chose this last week, you chose to cut LSAT out of your life. Is that what you want to do? Exactly. Is that what you want to do? Yeah. Valid choice. (laughs) People think that they're busy and they have so many things they quote have to do, but it's like, okay, let's just take an extreme example. Think about the president of the United States. There's only so much that any human being can do. And so by definition, the president has to be saying no to way more things than you're saying no to and way more things that are way more valuable or productive or whatever in this universe than you're saying no to. So you're clearly saying no to things or you're, you're saying yes to things that are worthless. Yeah. Or, or you're telling us that they're worth more to you than the LSAT is, which is absolutely a thousand percent fine. You mean that's possible. It's your life, but you you have to reckon with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. That was a a good excuse of the week. I'm glad we did that. That was awesome. And I am looking forward to that class very much. Cool. Uh, okay. So this one comes from Sheldon. This was a submission, uh, via the website, thinkinglsat.com. Uh, go ahead, Ben. Yeah. Hi, Ben and Nathan. My question is about the scholarship estimator and law school rankings. I have been playing around with the estimator for the past several months. I scored a 169 on my most recent practice test. I'm taking the April LSAT, and I hope to score somewhere around here on the official test. Okay, somewhere around the high 160s. I expected that the ranking of a law school would track somewhat equally with the likelihood of giving a full ride. In other words, the higher ranked schools are less likely to give me a full ride with my 3.55 UGPA and my 169 LSAT score if that is what I end up with as an official score. However, I have noticed that there are some higher ranked schools that will shell out a full ride for my numbers and some schools that are ranked much lower and the estimator predicts that those schools will only give less than half. For instance, the estimator predicts that the University of Iowa, which is ranked 28, will give me a full ride even if I apply with a score as low as a 166. On the other hand, The estimator predicts that Boston College ranked 37 or Fordham Law 38 or University of Washington Law ranked 50 would all give me less than half even when I plug in a 170 with my UGPA, my undergraduate GPA. Or as another example, according to the estimator, Brooklyn Law ranked 98 will not give me anything more than more than half even if I score a perfect 180. In fact, there seems to be 60 or more schools that will not give me anything more than more than half, even with a 180. These schools rank all the way from 11 to 195. Would you please provide some insight into why some schools that are ranked higher and would seem to be able to be more selective with their full rides are more likely to give me a full ride than those low-ranked schools? 
Um, do you want to keep, do you want to pause there? No, and- yeah, I, there's a lot. This, this person clearly, um, I, I'm glad that they went through all of this analysis. Um, I have linked in this email, Ben, to all these 509s. If you want to look at directly at the 509 for any of these schools, but yeah, yeah it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it's not linear because different schools are, are participating in this game in different ways. Different schools have different strategies. Different schools need to have different strategies. The first school you mentioned was university of Iowa. Well, let me tell you something about Iowa. No one wants to fucking go to Iowa. It's four degrees in the winter. It's dead flat. There's nothing there. No one ever is, was like, I want to go to Iowa. Yeah. So <laughs> Iowa, they've decided that if they want to climb the rankings, you know, notwithstanding Iowegians attending their school or other local people, you know, um, is that also, the name for people from Iowa? Yes. Iowegians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Iowegians. <laughs> Um, you know, like they grew up on a corn farm and they probably also raise hogs and they want to go to Iowa. Sure. They do that. But like, you know, you're not just attracting people from California to go to your school. You're not attracting people from New York to go to your school unless you make very generous scholarship offers. Other schools don't quite have to do that. Right. So like, yeah, Fordham, which is in well, New York, is like a peel-off school for yeah, all these like other Fordham, big New York schools. Yeah, exactly. So, right, Boston College is in Boston. Fordham is in New York City. University of Washington Law is in Seattle. Brooklyn Law yeah. is in Brooklyn. Like, yeah. those are all good places. Yeah. And so those, you know, are like, don't, don't get mad at me for like making fun of the flyover country, but more people live in these places. People live in these places because they're awesome and there's lots of opportunities there. And so people want to go to those schools because they are going to provide you opportunities in amazing places. Or or you just want to spend three years in an amazing place instead of spending three years in Iowa. What do we think then about this outlier? The very last one, why would the university of North Dakota ranked 183 not give me a full ride? With a 3.55 and a 180. Because they're not playing the game, which is why they're 183. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, Grand Forks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but Wade went to University of North Dakota. Okay. And he has nothing but uh, nothing but bad things to say about Grand Forks. He hates it. He like He's like, there's no reason that anyone should ever go to North Dakota at all universe, uh, especially Grand Forks, but so we can, and this is the thing that I, I really wanted to encourage, um, because maybe this is what Sheldon is not doing is actually looking at the 509 reports for these schools. So mm-hmm. he's clearly on the scholarship estimator, Yeah, but those little tiny links on the right hand side, the little PDF icon that's a link directly to the 509 report for every single school. And you should start looking at some of these 509s. This is the first time I have ever had any kind of occasion to look at the University of North Dakota's 509. Bottom of the second page, there's the scholarship matrix. They do give some scholarship money to 60% of their 
uh, incoming class or sorry, total at the school, 60%. Yep. yep. Uh, but the vast majority of those are less than half tuition scholarships. This is a school that charges 15. Wow. Wait, that can't be right. Do you think that's per semester? Well, it's resident versus non-resident. Oh, non-resident is 30,000. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, right. So this is what it looks like when a school doesn't play the game. I mean, honestly, or it barely plays. It plays the game to a lesser extent than all these other schools. It's also not, a, I can't have imagined that these schools are even competing with uh, other schools. If you can't run a marathon, you're not like looking at how to get into a marathon. You're just like, oh, I'm not, I'm checked out. Peace. I'm going to play my own game. Right. They don't consider themselves like there's far more schools that have these pretensions of being national law schools. Like my yeah. alma mater, UC Hastings, is a great example of that. Right. Where it's like can't stop talking about the rankings. <laughs> well, they, yeah. And they just like they have to have this grandiose plan of like we are one of the premier law schools in the nation. And it's like, no, you're fucking not. You can literally see Berkeley across the bay, which is a vastly better school. That's a national law school. Yeah. And Stanford is not too far away. That's a national law school. But there can't be that many truly national law schools. You know, when you're 50th mm -hmm. in the country, 51st now, they Hastings like wants to be a national law school and they claim to be a national law school. So, you know, they maybe they try to dabble in that scholarship game because they want to try to climb the rankings. And that's like the arms race, mm -hmm. you know, University of North Dakota, no pretensions of being a national law school keeping their non-resident tuition. I mean, I can, can you imagine a non-resident going to the university of North Dakota? That's like you, you literally couldn't get into any other law school. You applied to all the ABA schools and you end up going to the 181st ranked school in the country. Yeah. Or sorry, 183rd ranked school in the country. And you pay, you know, well, explain this to me now, Ben. Why does it say here on the estimator? Yeah. $46,000 is what it costs to go there. It could be that we have some glitch in the data that's this far down. I mean, like this is the first time anyone's ever mentioned University of North Dakota to us. Yeah. We've been doing here. the podcast for like eight years. This is the first time we've ever, I didn't realize they had a law school. Okay. Let's take a look. Um, it's probably the best law school in North Dakota. The data is incorrect in the estimator, so we need to fix that. Or this is actually, actually, wait, hold up. That's not necessarily true. We just had a discussion about this with Kevin. He was looking at data from the school's website as well as from the 509 reports. And when they're different, he's deferring to the school's website. So we uh, need to figure that out. Yeah. Um, well, we need to like figure out, I mean, the... <laughs> The ABA seems like they are, there's not any oversight apparently over these reports. It's yeah. sort of like, oh, it's in the code. You have to do these disclosures, but then no one is actually like policing the disclosures. Yeah. Also, okay, so this says other <laughs> 22.5. Do you see that on the actual 509? There's an other column there, which What's I've never other? even seen before. Oh, so that looks like that adds up then. So it's non-resident, 30,000. Annual fees of 1,700. Yeah. But, oh, but then, oh, oh, that's other students. That's some other shit. I don't know what that is. 
No, because that wouldn't add up. That'd be 52,000. Well, anyway, we'll sort it out. Sorry for sorting this out on the air, but here's the point. No one's going there. (laughs) I mean, they could start giving full rides to people um, to entice them to come to North Dakota, but they would have to give a ginormous offer to get anybody to come to that school. And instead, what they've chosen to do is to run a law school for the benefit of the citizens of North Dakota, right? They're only charging $15,000 a year for residents of North Dakota. That's Mm -hmm. a, it's not, it doesn't even like objectively, I'm not sure that's reasonable, but subjectively relative to all the other schools, it seems like it's um, more reasonable to charge somebody 15,000 a year. You said earlier 20,000, you thought was a good number. Um, Money's weird. Numbers are weird like that, but you know, they're charging their residents 15 grand and because they're charging their residents 15 grand, they just can't afford to be throwing money around on scholarships. Yeah. That's the way it would be if, I mean, I would honestly sign me up petition for make law school scholarships illegal. I don't think it should be legal. I think that the scholarships are bad Uh, or at least merit-based scholarships should be illegal because it's, it's creating the problem. It's, it's forcing this arms race where if you want to be a national law school, then you have to like rip people off in order to give scholarships to people who are better qualified. Yeah. And so it looks like UND is just like not playing the game. And I think that, uh, Sheldon, that's what's happening in your case is that some of these schools, either the place where they are is attractive enough that they don't have to play the game or the place where they are is so unattractive that they have chosen not to play the game. It'd be interesting if some, it would be a place where a law school could differentiate itself. Like a school that like, if you were serious about justice, yeah, you could be like, okay, we're going to start with a just tuition policy Mm -hmm. like we're not gonna rip off poorer less qualified people yeah matter of fact we're gonna give only need-based aid and and when we do that you know it might also allow us to normalize our tuition so our average tuition is going to be half that of these other schools because we're barely going to give scholarships and when we do give scholarships they're going to be entirely need-based because we're a school that is legitimately with our money <laughs> dedicated to justice. Anyway, free tip. If a law school out there wants to, uh, boy, they, that law school would get a shit ton of free advertising on this podcast. <laughs> they would. We'd never stop talking about them. Yeah. Last uh, item here is from Sam. This one was just uh, kind of a silly thing. It says, I thought you guys might enjoy this. Excluding the fact that Widener Law School is ranked well outside of the top 100, is it not a huge red flag when their first paragraph of their recruiting email reads like the stimulus of a level one logical reasoning question? As soon as I read it, I couldn't help but rephrase it in my head. So here's what the actual email says. Okay. Too many people think there are too many lawyers, semicolon. However, a recent study found that 80% of Marylanders who need help with a civil legal issue do not receive the aid they need. And then it goes on to say, you can gain the skills to resolve these different access to justice issues, 
blah, blah, blah. You know, and it's like you're come to widener. Yeah. Um, Okay, so Sam continues. Sam says, I rephrased that argument at the top as the following. Many people think that there are too many lawyers in the United States. Semicolon. However, a recent study found that most people in one small state lack available attorneys for one particular category of legal issues. Thus, those people are clearly wrong, as it is obvious that we need more lawyers for all legal domains in all places in the United States. <laughs> uh, that was all right. The conclusion there was implied right in their yeah. actual email. They didn't yeah. say, therefore, come to Widener. Instead, they're like, well, you can get the skills to blah, 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 blah. But yeah. I think Sam is absolutely right here that. They're, that is, they're inviting you to reach that conclusion. They're inviting you to leap to that. Like, oh, yeah. 80% of Marylanders who need help with a civil legal issue do not receive the aid they need. <laughs> By the way, Ben, give me an example of a civil legal issue for which a Marylander might need legal aid, but not be able to get that aid for some reason. Oh, maybe um, landlord-tenant issues. You're getting evicted. <laughs> yep. And you could use a lawyer to help defend you against the eviction. Yep. Why don't you just go get a lawyer to defend yourself <laughs> against the eviction? It's not worth the cost. You don't know how. You don't have the money. Well, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> they're implying that it's no, that it's because there's not a lawyer available. Yeah. That is not the case. Yep. The lawyer is not available at the price someone is willing to pay for that kind of legal aid. That's the problem. No, to be fair, I guess if we had millions of attorneys and desperate for work, then presumably the price would drop. And <laughs> But that's an interesting solution to this particular problem. Well, yeah. I mean, I just Widener, by the way, ranked 190th in the country in Delaware, the 509 report. Okay. Doesn't even have a number. Oh wait, it's under per credit. 1700 per credit hmm, times 30 per year. Sure. Hmm. Yeah. So the number that the estimator shows for Widener is 48,000 a year. So, you know, what Widener is telling you then is like, come pay $48,000 a year for three years plus fees so that you can represent people in landlord tenant issues who don't have money to pay. Yep. I mean, if you're going to churn out that many attorneys, you got to lower the bar for them becoming attorneys. And that includes lowering the cost of education and possibly getting rid of the bar. What, how do you want to, do you want good attorneys or semi quote unquote qualified attorneys? Or do you want, Lots and lots of attorneys who might be shitty, but hey, things are cheaper. Yeah. This is a school that gives shit tons of grants, by the way. You know, I mean, most of them are scammer ships. Most of the Widener scholarships are less than half tuition, but they do give half to full to 27% of the class and full to 4% of the class. So 31% of the class is going there for something less than half price. Still way too much. Jeez Louise. Yeah, it's it's just uh, that's the broken system. That's the world we're living in. And I wish we weren't. Yeah. Anyhow, 
it can benefit you if you just, Cheerio. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, for now, it benefits our students who just choose not to pay for law school, right? It, you, yeah. you can take advantage of this broken system by just making sure that you're not the one at Widener paying full price. Like yeah. if you're at that school paying full price, you have to be aware that other people are there on scholarships. And mm -hmm. so you can't make that decision. You have to like only go if you're getting all or, you know, super significant portion of it paid for because that's what other people are doing. And why would you pay for other people's JD? It just makes no sense. Yep. Be LSAT famous. Get on an upcoming show by emailing help at thinkinglsat.com. If you have questions about the LSAT demon, you can email our awesome help team. That's help at lsatdemon.com. Please check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily, that comes out five days a week. That was episode 347 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.